Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis and Practice is the podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in Behavior Analysis and Practice, the journal, by interviewing the paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of each paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask the authors after reading the paper. Hello and welcome back to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University. Today I'm going to be speaking with friend of the show, Lisa Treshko, and her co-author, Mary Jane Weiss, about their paper, Ethical Considerations of Behavioral Feeding Interventions. Lisa is a returning guest to our show. She is currently a graduate instructor and advisor of Applied Behavior Analysis at Endicott College. She received her bachelor's degree with a major in psychology and minor in education from Western New England University, master's degree in applied behavior analysis from Northeastern University, and her doctoral degree in applied behavior analysis from Endicott College under the mentorship of Dr. Mary Jane Weiss. Lisa has over 15 years of experience working with children and adolescents diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder and other intellectual and behavioral disorders in schools and residential settings. Her research interests include functional analyses, feeding interventions, and increasing cultural competency in higher education. Lisa has published articles on reduction interfering behaviors, video modeling, diversity, equity, inclusion in higher education, and feeding interventions. Mary Jane is the Associate Dean of Applied Behavior Analysis and the Director of the PhD program in ABA at Endicott College, where she has been for 10 years. She also works with the research and training teams at Melmark. She has worked in the field of ABA and autism for over 35 years. She received her PhD in clinical psychology from Rutgers University in 1990 and became a BCBA in 2000. She previously worked for 16 years at the Douglas Developmental Disability Center at Rutgers University. Her clinical and research interests center on defining best practice ABA techniques, integrating compassionate care and cultural responsiveness into ABA service delivery, exploring ways to enhance the ethical conduct of practitioners, training staff to be optimally effective at instruction and collaboration, and maximizing family members' expertise and adaptation. She serves on the Scientific Council of the Organization for Autism Research, is on the Board of Association for Science in Autism Treatment, is a regular contributor to the ABA Ethics Hotline, and is an advisor to the Cambridge Center for Behavioral Studies. Mary Jane is a regular reviewer for several professional journals and is a frequent member of service committees for a variety of organizations. 
My interview with Lisa and Mary Jane was incredibly interesting about a very important topic, and I'm very excited to share it with you all right now. So without further ado, here's my interview with Lisa Treshko and Mary Jane Weiss. Hello, Lisa and Mary Jane. Welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having us. I'm excited to have you both joining me today. This is Lisa's second episode and Mary Jane's first episode on the show. I don't like to ask people to come back on the show repeatedly because it takes you know time and, and quite a bit of effort to come on the show and prepare for something like this. And so I felt somewhat guilty reaching out to Lisa to come back on the show. But I think the topic of this paper is so interesting and I think so important that I felt obligated to, to sort of beg her to come back on the show. And she's very nice to join us again and, and to bring on her co-author of the paper, Mary Jane Weiss. The topic today is ethical considerations for behavioral feeding interventions. And I feel like behavioral feeding is, is a relatively nuanced, complex topic within the field of behavior analysis. And so I think this, this is gonna be rich of, of information and, and helpful resources. Before we jump into the topic, though, we like learning a little bit about our guests. And so would, would both of you mind telling us a little bit about your background, what your current role is, and, and why you're interested in this topic? Sure. So I'm Lisa Tereshko, and I am currently the graduate instructor and advisor at Endicott College. And I, while I was getting my PhD there, I started training on behavioral feeding interventions to help children with autism. So in my field work, I decided that or came across the fact that many students and clients really struggled in feeding and families had lots of issues with feeding. And there really aren't very many BCBAs that are trained to do behavioral feeding interventions and all the complexities that go with it. So during my PhD program, I did reach out and I got trained in behavioral feeding specifically which is really great. And then during an ethics class, actually with Mary Jane, um, I wrote this paper. So I saw that there was a need of really dissecting the ethics code at that time and how it related to feeding interventions. So that's really where the paper came about. That's so cool that this was a, a paper you did in class. I didn't realize that until this moment. So uh, I guess plug for the students in uh, a PhD program or master's program who are listening, if you take your assignments seriously and work to make them high quality, they can go, they can serve the field beyond just your class assignment. You can potentially turn those into publications and have a tremendous resource for the field. So that's really cool to hear. Mary Jane, would you mind giving us a little bit of background? Sure. I'll just add on to what you said, which I think that's the best outcome when what you do as part of your training and your academic work can actually create something new for the field in terms of a resource. So this is a great example of that. Um, and now for me, I'm Mary Jane Weiss. I'm the Associate Dean of Applied Behavior Analysis at Endicott College. I've been at Endicott for a little over 10 years I direct the PhD in ABA there and oversee the Department of Applied Behavior Analysis. And I've been in the field of applied behavior analysis and specifically its application to individuals with autism for over 35 years, which is harder to say 
than you can imagine. I, I can feel very old when I say that. Um, but it's um, it's been a real joy and a wonderful journey. And my favorite thing about it is um, is having the opportunity to mentor students and to see them develop. My interest in this really is in the ethics arena. As Lisa mentioned, I'm intensely interested in the ethical adherence of practitioners of behavior analysis and the skill sets that we need to develop to navigate ethical dilemmas well. I think this is an area where there's a tremendous need for that. And um, and I was happy to collaborate with Lisa to create this. Well, thank you both again for, for coming on the show. I'm excited to, to jump into questions now focused on the paper. You, in the introduction of the paper, you mentioned that a survey indicated that 72% of caregivers of children with ASD reported issues related to food selectivity and, and feeding issues. Yet in sort of both your explanations while you're interested in this topic, you said behavior analysts don't often have the skill set or the training in this area. And this is, of course, a relatively speculative question. But what's the what's the disconnect there? If, if we see such prevalence with these issues in the field, why don't we have more resources or uh, more training focused on this issue? Well, this is definitely more of an opinion-based question because there hasn't been true questioning as to the training involved in that. Um, I would say mainly because when BCBAs are getting their training through higher education and in their supervised field work or practicums, they're primarily focused on the task list that the BACB puts out. And though there is behavioral principles that are used in feeding interventions, they're not necessarily needing to then also be explored to that extent. Same thing with the ethical code that we have, and now this paper was written on the older one, and then in January 1st, we'll have a new one. Uh, but in both of the codes, they are great, and they do highlight the need for competence, but they don't necessarily then elaborate it the next step further in that it needs to be on each aspect of the skill set. Um, so that's where I feel there's a little bit of a disconnect in that, yes, there's a high prevalence, but yet when you look at the task list, it doesn't say on challenging behavior, on feeding, on X, Y, and Z. So that's where the follow through kind of is. And, and given that disconnect and, and sort of some of the, the, the guiding texts of our field, like the ethics code and the, the task list, is that what part of the motivation for this particular paper was, was sort of translating or applying the ethics code to this particular issue? Absolutely. Um, because this, again, came from an ethics class, primarily we focused on the ethical code. However, it could also be applied, I would say, to the task list as well. I would add a couple of things to what Lisa said. Again, these are opinion-based thoughts that I'm having about why that might be the case. And I think it, it might also come down to the fact that in our work within assessment, we're not necessarily broadening the lens to think about the relevance of these issues, to query parents about whether these are particular issues, to really look holistically at all the different ways in which there might be 
um, challenges or issues in daily experiences with the child. And I also think that it becomes unclear who should take the lead in this area from an intervention perspective. We're gonna talk some about collaboration, but this is a problem requiring the expertise, not just of behavior analysts. And so when we're in that kind of collaborative context with multiple expertises that are needed, it's also a bit unclear exactly how to proceed. That makes a lot of sense. I think at the end of the day, collaboration obviously improves services and, and, and resources and things like that, but it can also open up the opportunity for things to fall in the crack because uh, I thought you were taking the lead and you thought I was taking the lead and so on and so forth, and no one ever actually addressed the issue. One of the sort of nuances to these feeding issues you talk about in the introduction of the paper is sort of the three levels or the three types of, of feeding issues. Would you mind providing some, some information about what those three types are and, and, and sort of the difference between them? Sure. So the three types that the paper really focused on was food selectivity, food or liquid refusal, and then the refusal to self-feed. And so food selectivity is definitely the most common that you will see with our individuals with autism and that they'll only consume a certain type of food, a certain texture of food. It can really be selective based on a variety of things. Um, a lot of the times it's that child that will only eat chicken nuggets from McDonald's, but not any other type of chicken nuggets or the bland beige diet, as we call it, because they eat chicken nuggets and French fries or goldfish. Um, and they only eat things of that beige color. Um, and that's really where that food selectivity piece is. Then there's the food or liquid refusal, which is the next tier higher of importance, I would say, and severity. And that's where kids will refuse all, either all foods or all liquids. And lots of the time that does result in the need to have um, a tube placed in so that they'll get their nutrients via tube feeding. Uh, and then after that, there is just the refusal to self-feed. That one is when they will eat any variety of food, but the parent has to be feeding them or the caregiver has to be feeding them. They won't actually put the food into the mouths by themselves. There are a number of, I think, relatively obvious complications that would arise when you have clients or children or adults for that matter who are experiencing these issues. The food refusal and liquid refusal, obviously that should bring to mind immediate health concerns about nutrition. The food selectivity, you know, I think, again, you can start thinking about obvious connections to malnutrition. But in the, in the introduction, you also talked about the, the prevalence or the, the possibility or the issues related to obesity with, with food selectivity, which may not necessarily be something that people immediately identify as a risk factor. Could you explain how, how that might be connected? Absolutely. So that is definitely, like you said, a more surprising factor that people don't often think about. However, if you look at the type of foods, like that example I gave with the McDonald's chicken nuggets or French fries, if that's the primary food that the kids are eating throughout their day, then the type of calories and the type of nutrients that they're exposed to aren't any, of any quality. So therefore they're getting higher fat foods or higher sodium foods, and they're eating more of just that type of food. So that then leads to the obesity. That makes a lot of sense. And sort of 
before we get into sort of the body of the paper and, and looking at uh, some of the pieces related to collaboration, you sort of wrap your introduction up by talking about some of the complexities related to, to behavioral feeding issues that there could be sort of a physical component to uh, people's issues related to consuming foods and things like that. So could you talk about some of the complexities or the nuances that, that may be present and sort of require or lead to collaboration? Sure. Um, so it's definitely a complex behavior. Oftentimes people don't think that feeding is that complex, but if you think about it, they have to be seating, sitting appropriately in their chair. They have to have the right posture. If you're laying down when you're eating, obviously the food can get stuck in the tracks of your feeding. Uh, and then also just the skills of chewing and swallowing and acknowledging where the food is present in your mouth. So there is definitely a long process, not just putting the food in your mouth and swallowing like we usually think of, because to us, it's very mindless while we're doing the behavior. But for these kiddos, especially where they might have some type of motoric problem, it really complicates the situation. If they can't hold themselves upright, then that obviously complicates the situation. Or if they can't use their tongue appropriately, then that complicates it because they can't move the food around to then chew it appropriately and then swallow it without any problem. So there's definitely other issues that go on during the feeding process that then needs, leads to that need for collaboration. And I think it's important to acknowledge in that context that, um, that those are things that we are not well-versed in. Those are things that we're not trained in, exposed to, understand the medical nuances of. Um, and, I, and that is sort of the argument for really understanding what are the limitations of our contribution to this equation? You know, what is our lane, so to speak? which of course we'll talk about more, but Lisa made some great points about the, the complexities of even the positioning and motor pieces of this, which are certainly outside our scope. And so if you're a BCBA, you're working with a, a, a client and their family and through one means or another, you find out that the, the client has some food selectivity issues. Is this something as a BCBA, we should just immediately try some behavioral interventions with, or do we need to first consider, do we need to sort of rule out any of these, these medical components or begin collaboration immediately, or sort of what is the first decision rule that we would have to consider? Whenever I am faced with a new client that the family brings up that there's a food selectivity or food refusal or any of the feeding related behaviors that are of concern, um, my first step is always to ask the family further questioning. We do wanna make sure that they have consulted with a medical physician first and foremost. Um, we need to make sure that it's even safe for them to be an oral feeder. Lots of kids, if they don't have the proper tongue movements or they might even have um, a tongue tie or something like that, we may really need the medical consultation to occur prior to any behavioral feeding intervention. Because the last thing we would want to do is put a child at higher risk before we even implement any intervention. Um, along that, there's always allergies that also need to be ruled out. I don't want to be introducing a food that might be a high allergy food for that child. 
So the collaboration is always the first and foremost. And I always ask the family if there has been a medical consultation first. And then I usually get a release to consult with the medical first. Um, after that, then I will move on to my other allied health providers as well, just to make sure that collaboration does occur across any other providers the child has. The, the topic of feeding seems to be is sort of loaded with components that would need more collaboration than even a typical uh, client service arrangement. I mean, uh, I think our, as, as a field, I think we acknowledge and understand the importance of collaboration across sort of all domains, but this seems to be especially sort of nuanced in it and its need for collaboration. Why is that? Why why can't we as 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 a behavior analyst try to take a look to figure out if there's a a, a, a physical component, if the, if there's issues with the tongue movement or anything like that, why why do we need to seek out these medical experts to to help us with that? And I think that goes back to our ethics code and the um, scope of our competence. That is definitely not an area where we are trained to go and assess the physical uh, structure of somebody's mouth. We also don't have the training to assess whether they have GERD and that they're having acid reflux while they're eating, and that's why they're not eating. So there's definitely a lot more involved. It's not just environmental, observational, outward behaviors that we can observe in the feeding process, but there is a lot more internal situations and we're just not trained to then work on those pieces. The other thing I would add to that is that we can make things worse by acting in the absence of appropriate knowledge and skill. And um, you know, while that is abhorrent in any context, it's especially worrisome with something like feeding because they need to eat in order to live and thrive. And we can't be in a position where we might make what's already a fragile or worrisome circumstance more so. That makes a lot of sense, especially considering the sort of risk of potentially worsening a situation. So to successfully treat behavioral feeding issues, we've got to consider a few key collaborators. And we sort of already alluded to them, but looking at medical profession professionals, allied health professionals, and then getting into like the caregivers and the parents. Can we talk about what each of those roles really does and and, and potentially how we can seek consultation with, with with people in those professions. And so looking at the the medical professional you already somewhat described some of the big pieces or sort of assessments or rule outs that they would need to do, but could we restate those and talk about the importance of this role in this collaboration? Absolutely. Um, so the medical professional is always my first go-to professional um, because we do, like Mary Jane said, wanna make sure we're not gonna cause more harm to the child or individual. So first, I always ask the family for a medical consultation to ensure that they can feed orally, that they have the physical structure to do so and that it's safe to do so. And then also, oftentimes, the medical professional will do gastrointestinal work as well um, to make sure that there's no internal situation that's occurring when they're eating. 
Do you have specific questions you you ask a medical professional to check out? I mean, you kind of mentioned the swallowing piece, but I've asked for medical rollouts across a lot of different concerns. And sometimes I'll get doctor's notes back from a medical doctor that simply say something like, safe to proceed with behavioral interventions. And it's like, well, <laughs> I kind of wanted specific information from you about, you know, their uh, physical structures to ensure that they are what they need to be. So when you're seeking medical consultation, do you simply ask that they see a doctor to confirm that, that this would be safe? Or do you ask them to check, like, could you, could you ask them to check the swallowing? Could you ask them to to check their digestive uh, system? Like, do you ask those uh, information that detailed or what does that look like? It really depends on the child and the situation. If a child is just engaging in food selectivity and for the most part still will consume a good like 30 foods, um, then I'll just have them do just a basic overview for that child. And really at that point, I'm mostly looking at allergies to make sure that I don't feed them anything that they could then react to. Um, and it's if, if they're eating a variety across different textures and uh, different types of foods, then I'm a little less concerned about a full medical workup. However, if a child is engaging in food refusal, that's when I really do want a full workup. And I usually will refer them to the GI doctor, not just their pediatrician. Um, obviously, usually they go to their pediatrician first and then to the GI, which is fine. Uh, but that's when I really talk to them more about like, can you do a full workup to see if there's anything internal that's going on and for us to proceed with oral feeding. And I usually do specify oral feeding because we want them to realize that we want to feed them via the mouth. <laughs> uh, and lots of kids that are doing food refusal will have tubes and we don't want to work on increasing tube feeding. We want to really work on them consuming foods through their mouth. That makes a lot of sense. So do you typically yourself, I think this is just a fascinating question in terms of, of collaboration in general, because I, I, the, you know, our ethics code talks about the need for medical rule-outs and a lot of things. And I find that obviously that's extremely important, but that can be tricky to navigate. Sometimes doctors aren't, medical doctors aren't the easiest people to get on the phone in my experience anyway. And so are, when you're seeking these, these collaborations and this information, are you typically directly contacting the medical doctors or are you simply sort of communicating the needs and the information that needs to sort of be uh, collected by the caregiver from the medical doctor and sort of using them as a connecting piece? Again, it really depends on the child. <laughs> I hate to say that over and over, but it does. Um, so if it's just a food selectivity child, and I don't mean to say just food selectivity, um, however, if it's a food selectivity case, usually it's through the parent, uh, but the food refusal ones, especially if there's a tube inserted, I will talk to the doctor directly and the family will sign off on consent to do that because it's more of a complex conversation. And sometimes I'll even go with the family to doctor's appointments as well. The more severe the presentation, the more severe the medical consequences, the more the, there are concerns about nutritional status or weight or growth. I think those would all be um, indicators that would push you into a much more active direct connection with the doctor. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. If it's something relatively low risk and it's simply 
increasing the number of foods the client is eating, ideally probably getting some healthier foods in there if I, if I had to guess. That's sort of one type of conversation. But if we're talking, you know, potentially life-threatening or at least, you know, high-risk issue related to food refusal or liquid refusal, I can see that being a much more in-depth consultation. To somewhat segue into the next group that you may end up collaborating with, you talked about allied health professionals, which might include things like speech pathologists, OTs, and nutritionists. Can you talk about their role in all of this and how you might see consultation with those groups? Sure. Um, so uh, those are fields that also have very specific relevant skill sets that, again, we do not possess. And I think that's one of the meta messages of this article is, you know, we have a role and we have an expertise that is relevant to addressing these concerns, but it is, you know, necessary, but insufficient in terms of the adequate assessment and treatment of this kind of challenge. And there are other fields that also have specific expertise that's relevant and necessary. So, in terms of the, um, the role of an occupational therapist or an SLP, um, and sometimes they're overlapping, sometimes both of them are involved, sometimes one of them is involved, sometimes their expertise is truly overlapping. They may both have good expertise, for example, in swallowing and in working with swallowing. They may both have good expertise or training in issues of increasing the textural complexity of what a child can safely consume. Um, and so those professions, I think, are, are necessary in terms of really looking very specifically at some of those issues of how different structures are being used to ingest food, whether it's being done safely, whether there's a risk of aspiration, um, you know, actually breathing in food as opposed to swallowing food. Those are issues that those fields are usually very well equipped to manage. And we work hand in hand with them in terms of figuring out, okay, what's the baseline texture we should be working on? Um, what are the other issues we need to be thinking about, about chewing, about bites that we're looking at in terms of appropriate um, goals? And uh, in an ongoing way, they can help us identify when a particular child or client may be ready for the next level without jumping too many steps ahead, without having missteps that make them avoidant of food or eating contexts, et cetera. And from a nutritional perspective, um, we really need their input, especially for those more severe cases, especially for those even food selectivity cases can require the input of a nutritionist, because when someone is eating a few low nutrition foods, there are severe potential nutritional consequences. So they can really help us in identifying some good initial and long-term plans that increase the nutritional value of what we're providing to the clients. That's helpful. And do we see the collaboration with these allied professional groups to be in addition to or potentially instead of a consultation with a medical doctor? Like, do we need to, I guess, first go medical doctor, get, get sort of uh, 
any medical rule outs necessary and then seek consultation with these groups? Or can we potentially just collaborate with a speech pathologist or, or occupational therapist? I think we're generally talking about both, right? We're talking about both and, you know, you, we need to do both that initial assessment rule out clearance, and then we need the expertise of the professions to work through those specific goals of how we move ahead and how we positively impact their feeding. With the involvement of a speech pathologist, occupational therapist, nutritionist, et cetera, if you have a client, say your BCBA working with, with families and, and children with autism and, and your client has food selectivity issues and you seek medical rule out and you get sort of permission from a medical doctor saying, you know, there's no major physical issues going on here. How do you go about seeking consultation or collaborations with these allied professional groups? I mean, at times those individuals already have those people in their lives, right? They may already be receiving speech and language and OT services. Those are probably the most two common allied professions that are already part of the service delivery team. Um, but at other times you may need to bring in those individuals into the fold or, you know, in order to achieve these goals. So I, I think it probably varies. You also want to make sure that those individuals have the expertise, just like not every behavior analyst might have the specialized skills in feeding interventions like Lisa spoke about initially. Um, occupational therapists and SLPs vary in the amount of time they spend in their careers devoted to these issues and whether they would consider themselves to be adequately equipped for any particular situation, especially for the more severe cases. So even if you have some of those professions involved, it may be that those individuals say, we need to bring someone in from my profession that knows more about this than I do, just as we would. That makes a lot of sense. It, it seems like if you're beginning to approach some of these topics, if, if this is your first time going through this process of behavior analyst, you should A, probably be considering your own competency and being able to do this. And so if you don't already have those connections or know where to go, well, it sounds like perhaps the first step is seeking consultation with behavior analysts that do have experience in this and can perhaps kind of lead you through some of those, those pieces, which I suppose brings us into the role of the behavior analysts. Actually, I don't want to get into that yet because we've got one more uh, crucial collaborator who's going to be a collaborator across any and all types of services, which is the parents and the caregivers. How are they involved with, with these, this particular topic and, and, and how do they collaborate um, within this? So oftentimes it is the parent that brings this concern to the behavior analyst or to the team. And so talking to them, figuring out exactly what their concern is, just because their child is engaging in food selectivity, they might not necessarily say we want to target fruits and vegetables per se, but they just want to get them eating a wider variety, different types of French fries or different types of chicken nuggets. So really figuring out what the parents' priorities are is really important and figuring out what their goals are. Are they just trying to make it through a meal without their child crying? 
what is it that's the problem and what is it that how we can help with them? Because as the research shows, it really increases parent stress and family stress when a child's not eating. That is their primary parent goal is to be able to provide for their child the nutrition and adequate nutrients that they need. And when there's a feeding problem, they really start to feel, I'm not doing my job. And so really helping the family understand that they're not doing anything wrong and that they are doing the best they can and giving them some strategies and really figuring out what their goals are to increase the success of family mealtime for their child and their family is really the first step to talk to families. And then from there, really involving them, we, as we know in our compliance code, in our ethics code to be, um, informed consent is essential. We need to have their informed consent for the assessment and for the intervention and talking to the families about different choices of intervention and what the outcomes of different interventions have demonstrated in research to really help them really know what we're going to be doing with their child and what they'll be doing with their child so that they can actually consent to something that they see as appropriate for their child in their home. Um, and then just the generalization piece of families are the ones that are there. They're as much as we're there and we go to every meal to help through feeding problems for a certain set amount of time. After a while, we're not the ones there feeding their child every day. So really that generalization to the family so they can go to different relatives' houses or go to restaurants, obviously when COVID's not an issue, and they can go out with their child and eat where they need to eat with their child and they can do the interventions as needed. I think the piece where you're talking about, you know, that this can be very, very scary for parents and, and, and make them feel very vulnerable. I mean, there probably aren't, very many behaviors that are as dangerous as food and water refusal. And so if you think about what that can do from a parent standpoint of feeling like they have the capability of, of taking care of their child, what that must be like to experience from their standpoint. And so getting them involved as quickly as possible, just from, from, from the sake of helping them through that difficult time. But as you said, I mean, if we work on food refusal or selectivity in an autism center and we get the, the client eating a diverse array of foods in an autism center and they go home every night and they refuse to eat food or, or consume liquids at home or they're highly selective, what good is that? I mean, sure, we, we obviously are helping sort of put a Band-Aid on it and sort of helping them get the nutrition they need for a short period of time. But when they age out of services or whatever it may be, uh, the, the generalizability and the maintenance of, of those behaviors is going to be a major question and a major concern. And so I, I love the focus on the parents and caregivers as being an absolutely critical collaborator and, and, and people involved with the services here. So. Uh, sort of taking the step back and looking at, again, I'm a behavior analyst. I've got a client who's engaging in food selectivity. I'm seeking medical consultation. I'm looking for allied uh, professional health providers. I'm, I'm collaborating with the parents. What exactly is my role in feeding issues and, and intervening there? Like, What exactly does a behavior analyst have to offer to this, this issue? So feeding is a behavior. <laughs> so just like other challenging behaviors that we work with, 
um, we can work with feeding as well. It's just that we have to take the necessary steps before we intervene and before we, we do our assessment to ensure we're not going to cause any more harm to the individual. However, once we have all those consultations done, we absolutely can then provide an assessment that's appropriate for the child and then an appropriate intervention as well. A lot of the research points to that many interfering behaviors that occur during mealtimes is escape maintained. If you think about it, the more the child cries, the family takes away the food. Um, and so therefore they don't have to have that aversive stimuli of the non-preferred food present and they get something else that they want instead. Um, so oftentimes it is an escape maintained behavior if there's an aversive that is present, which is the food. Uh, so we can absolutely work on different environmental manipulations based on that to see exactly what's going on. Attention can also be a factor if the parent is in the other room and just says, here, go eat your dinner, and the child refuses to eat their dinner. Well, now the mom's coming in and she's bargaining with the child, negotiating, okay, just take two bites, okay, just take one bite, what do you want after? And really that negotiation piece, I always tell families, can be just as damaging as just walk away and let them eat. Um, and then also tangible can also be a factor. Uh, a lot of the times if they protest enough, they might get those chicken nuggets after all, or they might get that preferred food. So they really can do it for that as well. And I think you just gave some great examples of kind of the, the desperation that starts to set in because most of these families have tried unsuccessfully for years to address this issue and watched in many cases, the repertoire gets smaller, the protests get larger. And so the sense of self-efficacy that families have in that context is usually abysmal. They've failed, they have failed reliably, they have failed repeatedly, and they don't know what else to do. They've tried many different things that a lot of smart people have suggested to them and none of them have worked. And so there's also just this cumulative hopelessness and chronic worry that is just a natural consequence of, of you know, multiple times a day not being able to get the child to, to eat what others are saying is important for them to do so. As Lisa mentioned, kind of this feeling of I'm not doing my job. One of the critical pieces, as you're saying, Lisa, is to assess the issue, right? You talked about how or what different functions could look like a, 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 a related to behavioral feeding issues and that it could be escape, it could be attention, it could be tangible. So what are some of the like critical or necessary assessments that, that we as a behavior, the, the behavior analyst would need to be considering here? We need to think about function. It sounds like, are there other things that we need to be assessing and considering? So I would also consider the treatment of where we're going to go. Um, there's a bunch of different feeding interventions, and I know we're probably going to get more into that, uh, but there's a bunch of different feeding interventions that can be implemented regardless, I don't want to say totally regardless, but regardless of the function of that behavior, because we can modify various aspects, but we always want to make sure that we are collaborating with the parent during that treatment selection to make sure that it's something that's going to be feasible for them to implement. Because like you mentioned, if we're doing it just at a center and then they go home, they're not eating on the weekends, they're not eating at night, that 
that really defeats the purpose of implementing an intervention. So really the assessment piece from the behavior analyst side is the functional assessment piece. It does not necessarily need to be a full experimental functional analysis. Just a descriptive assessment is usually sufficient in the world of feeding because you can really just observe a few of those meal times and really get a picture of what's going on and manipulate those variables accordingly. However, if you can't or you observe a meal or you can't observe a meal and no behaviors occur at that meal because you're present or the child is refusing even to go to the table during your observation, indirect assessments can be appropriate at that time as well. So it's with the feeding, it doesn't necessarily, the research shows that the true experimental analysis isn't always necessary for feeding behaviors in particular. One of the pieces you talked about in this section of the paper related to assessment and treatment was the, the need to target least restrictive interventions. And we'll talk specifically about interventions or specific interventions in a moment, but heading into this sort of view of interventions with this least restrictive lens, could you explain that and talk about why that's important? Sure. Um, you know, in general, we have a value on using the least restrictive yet effective intervention for any kind of behavioral issue. Um, but I suppose there's an even more compelling reason to remember that ethical mandate in this context, because the more intrusive interventions can increase the trauma, so to speak, that's associated with intervention, can increase the refusal, could increase the restrictiveness of the repertoire, can increase parental worry, concern, inefficacy. And so we want to start particularly in this arena with something that's likely to be successful, something that's likely to be a small scale goal um, and an intervention that is likely to not be something that's going to create a major behavioral escalation. So something like simply force feeding irrespective of any assessments or, or client situation or sort of idiosyncratic variables probably not the least restrictive and the sort of least traumatic route right. to go and, and, and something important to consider. Um, exactly. One of the pieces that you talked about in terms of the role of behavior analysts is to help navigate the world of sort of non-evidence-based practices related to feeding and, and navigating to evidence-based practices related to feeding. And so could you talk about what I suppose, why that's important to identify these evidence-based practices within feeding, and then perhaps some of the, the more prevalent non-evidence-based practices that you see related to feeding. Like with most things, <laughs> there, there are a large number of non-evidence-based interventions that have cropped up that, um, that may promise great results without any data to actually back that up. And parents are vulnerable, not just in the context of feeding, but maybe especially in the context of feeding, because the worry is so extreme and the stakes are so high that they may invest hope, energy, etc., in interventions that don't have much promise or hope. The good news, the really good news from a behavior analytic perspective is we do have a number of interventions with very high rates of success. We definitely have shown 
the um, possibility for changing even very ingrained, even very severe feeding challenges. Um, but the likelihood is that parents are more likely to encounter the hyped up non-evidence-based procedures that may pop up on their Google searches. And so the dangers of those, of course, are you know the usual ones of prolonged ineffectiveness, which is just going to lead to more continuance and possibly increased severity of the issues. Um, but it might also make them weary of trying interventions and um, less hopeful about what you might be able to bring in terms of, of effective intervention. And just to piggyback that, um, a lot of the allied health providers have actually recommended some non-evidence-based practices. And so a lot of the times when the behavior analyst goes into a situation where the family mentions that their child has a feeding problem, they may have already tried some of these interventions that have been non-effective and non-evidence-based. Because also in the research that identified the same, same article actually that identified the high prevalence of feeding, also identified the high prevalence of a sensory program being recommended. And so oftentimes it's families are recommended this sequential oral sensory program, SOS is what it's called in the feeding literature. Um, and then families don't see success with it. And then by the time they get to us, not only does their child have a long history of now these feeding problems that are making no progress, the families are even more frustrated and the stress level increases even further. I think this sort of leads to a question I think is common when, when collaborating with other professional groups, which is if I'm working on a team to address behavioral feeding issue and someone else on the team suggests something like this SOS intervention, which as an aside, is a great name for an intervention. It's a really good acronym. SOS, right? For feeding when you're feeling desperate and your kids, I mean, they got us on that for sure. Got good marketing. <laughs> <laughs> they got good marketing. But so they bring up this SOS and, and perhaps the family hasn't tried it yet, but you know, uh, the listeners have, have, have heard this podcast and read the paper and read more about it. And it's like, mm, this is probably not the, the greatest route to go. How do we navigate that? So I always go back to the research when I talk to families. Um, and I also look at the Broadhead article as well, because he actually provides an amazing flowchart, which is attached to this article as well. We got his permission <laughs> to go ahead and reproduce that as well. So people have it. Uh, but it really does walk you through how to navigate when those procedures are introduced and how to assess whether you're going to be able to implement them. And so research actually has been done to try and compare the SOS model to behavioral interventions. And like the flowchart recommends, they actually translated it into behavioral principles to then make it a more formalized procedure because the actual SOS procedure, if the child's stress response becomes too high, that's when they take a step back. However, that's not very behavior analytic. So they actually broke that down and redefined what that means. And then we're able to systematically change the procedure to compare it to a behavioral intervention. Um, and all the research is showing that children really do need that behavioral intervention piece in order to make progress. There might be a sensory 
issue that the child has, and that's okay. We're not saying that there's not a sensory component to the feeding selectivity or refusal. So I do think it's important to acknowledge that when families bring that forward, because that is a very common thing with feeding, especially. So acknowledging that and showing them, well, there might be a sensory piece there, but behaviorally we have strategies such as shaping or fading that can help work with those sensory pieces and help your child overcome some of those issues so that they can then get the nutrients that they need to be a healthy individual. So it doesn't sound like if a, if a team member brings up SLS that we necessarily have to be in a position of saying, no, we definitely shouldn't do that. There might be ways of of adapting that procedure to fit or to align with behavioral interventions more so? Is, is that what I'm understanding here? I would say yes and no. Um, I usually, when a family recommends the SOS and says they've talked to these people that say SOS is the way we're going to go, if that's what they want to do, that's a very clear-cut procedure. Um, it's I wouldn't say it's well-researched because it's well-researched to show not to have evidence, but it is a marketed procedure and that's how you do it. Um, so I usually break down with the family, well, what is it about this procedure that is drawing you to it? Is it because the OT or the speech recommended it? Well, let's work with them and I'll go to the speech and OT to talk about why they're recommending it and where they're trying to go with it. What is it that their goals of this intervention are? The procedure really does take some aspects of shaping, but it doesn't progress through shaping as appropriately as it should in the behavioral world. Um, so if that's where we need to start, we can work on shaping and fate using fate shaping or fading procedures to help the child overcome some of these sensory issues if that's why they're saying we need to use this because it's a sensory issue. So really educating those people who are recommending this non-evidence-based procedure to see how we can actually still target the behavior of their concern, the sensory piece of feeding refusal to then incorporate behavioral strategies instead that would have demonstrated that they're effective for the child. I think Lisa just gave some great examples though of some good collaboration strategies. So um, she asked a lot of questions, right? She's talking about going to the family and doing a little mini assessment. What is it about that that drew you to that? Tell me more about what you think about that intervention that makes you consider it for your child. What are the things that appealed to you? And then she also talked about going to the interventionists themselves. Why did you recommend it? What are you thinking about it? Which aspects of it? So she's broadening that lens of assessment. She's also doing more asking than telling. And that is really important. And sometimes is a pitfall that we're sometimes accused of, of being a bit too directive about a multidisciplinary intervention and creating a context in which we can learn more about what others are thinking and recommending might put us in a position where we can utilize Broadhead's model more effectively, where we can actually understand, okay, what's the thing they're drawn to? Is that translatable? Is that an element we could add to our interventions? Is that something that could be incorporated into systematic shaping or fading? I love that approach. And I, and I love the description that both of you provided about it. I think, you know, when it comes to successfully collaborating with anyone, one of the keys is finding common ground. And how are, do you plan to find common ground? If someone says, hey, I think this intervention should be the route we take. 
is finding common ground going, no, sticking your flag in the mud and going, I think we need to do this. Is that finding common ground? Uh, no. How do you figure that out? You ask questions. And I love that sort of spiral that you, you described of, well, why do the, why are the parents interested in this intervention? Is there a piece about this intervention based off the parent's description that we can find common ground on and go, oh, you like this piece? Well, we can help you do this piece and maybe not in these words, but in a more effective evidence-based way, right? Probably not necessarily saying that to the parents, depending. Or if it's, well, you know, the, the OT or the speech pathologist, whoever recommended it, going to them, having the same conversation. What, what are you guys hoping to do here? What does that look like? Why are we doing that? And, and finding those specific reasons, because I mean, at the end of the day, everyone's just trying to help, right? Like no one has bad intentions of, yeah, we're just trying to use a nonsense intervention that isn't going to help anyone. That's not what people are hoping to do. There are, there are probably logical uh, pieces or, or rationale within these interventions. And if we can find those, it can open up a conversation on how we make them more effective. So I love that. I also just want to say that I love your point about how everyone's trying to help. And I think that's really what's important is when you are collaborating with such a large team of individuals, really taking a step back and realizing they're trying to do what's best for the, for the individual. And that what you see as evidence-based might not be their same definition of it of evidence-based practices and really taking a step back and seeing it that they have a different lens of procedures that they're looking through and that that's why they're recommending different things. But ultimately everyone's goal, especially in the world of feeding is to have the child to eat their food through their mouth and happily at a mealtime at dinner. And so really taking that step back and realizing that we're all trying to get to the same end game is really important. And I suppose that brings us to the evidence-based practices or evidence-based behavioral interventions to, to take on feeding issues. And so you sort of break the interventions into three categories or three approaches. Could you introduce each of those and sort of talk about some of the nuances within the approaches? Sure. So the first one that we talked about was just reinforcement strategies. So really the application of positive reinforcement um, first and foremost, as the least restrictive procedure, just having the child earn a preferred item or activity after every bite or after the end of the meal, whatever it may be. Uh, so that's just the basic first step, least intrusive procedure. There is obviously variations within it. We can do differential reinforcement of different kinds. Differential reinforcement of alternative behavior is always a really popular one within the world of feeding. However, lots of studies do actually say that just reinforcement alone isn't always enough to break through and make that true progress that we're looking for. It's oftentimes paired in treatment packages with another intervention. Um, and it has helped to reduce other behaviors from occurring and keep the inappropriate behaviors at minimum during feeding intervention, which is great because uh, I think the tantruming and the aggressions that may occur during meals are often just as hard for families to see as it is to them not eating. Um, so it is a successful procedure in that regard. And oftentimes, like I said, it is paired with another um, intervention as well. The next one we reviewed was physical prompting, and that can take a, the look of many different types of prompts. It can be as simple as a gestural prompt to all the way up to most invasive of a finger prompt to the jaw so that the child will open their mouth. 
um, or it could just be hand over hand to help the child actually self-feed and fade the prompts accordingly. So that prompting procedures really does have a wider spectrum, I would say, of interventions in the world of feeding specifically. And then finally, the last one we reviewed is escape extinction. So escape extinction is probably the most common procedure that is implemented with feeding. However, families also report that it is a hard procedure to watch, let alone implement themselves. Um, it obviously is when the food is presented over and over um, until the child consumes the food. So that can be very troublesome for the child, for the family. It can result in other behaviors during the process and so forth. And then I think it's just also important to note that escape extinction comes with a variety of names in the world of feeding. A lot of the times non-removal of the spoon is also noted in feeding literature. And that's just another form of escape extinction. Instead of the plate being present in front of the child and representing the plate or the bite for the child, it's a bite of food on a spoon that's being held to their mouth until they accept that bite of food. So it looks a little bit different, but ultimately the principles underlying it is escape extinction as well. When you wrote about each of these interventions within the paper, you talked about, and you mentioned this and you were providing your, yeah, the description here, that so research has sort of indicated that the physical prompting is, is likely favored amongst caregivers over escape extinction. Is, is there a certain level of prompting? Do, do, we, do we have sort of a granular information about the level of prompting? Because I guess to me, I'm trying to visualize the difference between, let's say, like a full physical prompting procedure versus escape extinction. Are, are those distinct or do those look somewhat similar? So I think it depends on what the prompting is being used specifically for. Um, so if the feeding problem is refusal to self-feed, then that's more of a hand over hand prompt, just like to guide the child to touch their head. You'd be now guiding the child to use the spoon to eat their food instead, and then fading it as success is seen. So that one's a little less intrusive because of the behavior itself. The child is willing to eat the food. Whereas if you're physically prompting a child to open their mouth and then physically prompting the food, the spoon of food into their mouth, it's a lot more intrusive and seen as, like you mentioned, escape extinction. Um, some escape extinctions, you wait the child to take the bite themselves. Other escape extinctions, you are physically um, opening the child's mouth with the jaw prompt and then putting the food into their mouth. So that obviously is a lot harder to watch um, and a lot harder for families to do as there are a lot more interfering behaviors that may occur during that. Within these interventions, you, you mentioned, and we keep circling back to this, but I think it's incredibly important to say multiple times is the, the need to go for the least restrictive yet effective intervention possible. And you talked about starting with reinforcement procedures and then potentially adding in some more of these restrictive procedures if necessary. So for someone going through this treatment scenario, Again, they've got collaborators involved. They're going through and doing assessments, starting with some sort of reinforcement procedure. What would be some of the decision points or considerations, let's say, if the, if the client doesn't respond to a standard reinforcement procedures? How, 
should I choose between potentially physically prompting escape extinction as the next step in the scenario? Well, I also think that there's within that reinforcement category, there's many options that can be taken prior. Um, and so we are saying the least to most, and it's not I, reinforcement is the least and escape extinction is the most, and there's nothing in between. Um, there's a lot of interventions in between that can use various components of each and really deciding which component and which intervention to implement is just like with any behavior, an art in itself. And that we might start with, we're gonna do positive reinforcement with differential reinforcement of alternative behaviors. So therefore there is a little extinction piece involved. However, we're also working on using positive reinforcement with shaping so that we're building the behavior towards what we're looking for systematically. Um, so there is a way to not just go from A to Z, but navigate the in-between as well. That, that's very helpful. Yeah, and I, I love the, the pointing out that it's not just like one type of reinforcement procedure. We just try simple, you know, giving them access to a tan, uh, preferred tangible after they take a bite. Oh, it doesn't work. I guess we go to escape extinction now, right? Uh, no, there's you got to sort of look more specifically at the type of uh, reinforcement procedure. I think earlier in the interview, you mentioned potentially doing some shaping and, and sort of things like that. And so there's a lot within these categories that can be pieced together and utilized or not these three, like try basic reinforcement. Okay. Escape extinction. And so how do you learn to navigate those things? I think it's sort of answer is, is obvious in the conversation we had, which is you got to seek training consultation and, and supervision in these areas to build your competency. And think about all the other related decisions that you might be making that would increase the compliance or ability to tolerate the procedures. What foods are you looking at? What are the contingencies you're trying to put in place? How many bites? What do you use in terms of reinforcers for all those layers of the response? So I think there are so many, many decisions that are part of that, that treatment framework that can really be used to, um, to build the momentum of the treatment. That, that's, this has been so helpful and so interesting. I want to be respectful of everyone's time. It's just blown by. I feel like I blinked and we're, we're wrapping up here. So as we're approaching the end of our time, are there any other thoughts on the topic related to this paper or uh, to sort of combine that with another question, are there other resources or things that people interested in this topic could go on to explore? I would say the two figures that we do present in the paper are very helpful. Um, one is more of a rubric to have more of a checklist for yourself to know where you're at when you are implementing feeding procedures, what to do before anything happens, what to do during assessment time, and what to do during the actual session to make sure that your behavior is remaining ethical and has the student's or client's best interest in mind. And then also, like we've mentioned, Broadhead's flowchart for those non-evidence-based practices is really helpful as well. And I would just say that that it is important for behavior analysts to be part of the mix in the treatment of selective feeding. 
we do have skills to assess and to treat these issues in a nuanced way. We simply can't do it alone. So we need to be thinking about our scope of competence in terms of our own training, supervision, and consultation. And we need to be thinking about the collaborators who are going to join us in this endeavor so that we're looking at all of the issues. This has been extremely helpful. Thanks for pointing out the figures. The frequent listeners of Babcast know that I love uh, referencing figures and tables. And yeah, the, the tables or the figures in this, this article are extremely helpful. Quick depiction of really everything we've talked about in some of these decision trees. So um, please check out the article uh, at the very least to look at the, the figures. And thank you, Lisa and Mary Jane, for joining us today. Thanks for having it's us. It's been great. Thank you. Before you take off, please remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use and to find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and to suggest recent bat papers that we should review. I'd like to thank a few people for helping create this podcast. Thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. And thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervias and Jesse Perrin, as well as my production assistant for this episode, Jacqueline Wilson. As always, we'd also like to thank Jim Carr and his band New Latitude for letting us sample their song Cruising Altitude throughout this podcast.